save you date. Let me invite you all to take your Bibles and go with me back to the book of Ephesians this morning. Ephesians chapter 1. It's been several years ago now. I got a, one of those email newsletters and just was reading through different parts of it. And uh, it referenced a game that kind of caught my attention. So I thought, well, I'm going to click that link and visit that site and uh, just look at the game and see how I do. Uh, the premise of the game was that you would be dropped off somewhere in the world, like when you click play and all of a sudden it takes you to this place and you are in Google Street View and uh, that's the place that you're dropped off on and then on the other side of the screen there's a map and you drop a pin on the map where you think you are. It did not take me very long to realize I am horrible at that game. I would think, oh, we're in Europe somewhere, and I'd find out we were in South America. And I'd think, well, you know, certainly this has got to be in the U.S., and I'd find out I'm in China. And I'm like, how can I be this bad at figuring this out? Uh, the more I've thought about it, though, I realize that's probably just part of who I am. Um, you know, when I, you fly, perhaps you, like me, look out the window and you try to figure out where you're at and how you're approaching the airport. I'm the person who can never figure it out until we're like 30 feet off the ground. And I'm like, oh, we're at the Philadelphia airport. I know exactly where we are. Uh, I'm not that guy who's like, oh, yeah, our house is right over. Like, I don't have a clue. Like, we could be coming in from the north, and I think it's the south. Like, spatially, I just don't get it. I don't do well with it. By way of illustration, I think sometimes without realizing it, without intending it, uh, we go to a text of Scripture and we're dropped off, if you will, in that text of Scripture and we sort of zoom in on it myopically, forgetting the context and why it matters and how you've gotten there. Often as believers, we can be very practically focused on, well, what do I need to do? What does the text tell me to do? And we kind of miss the big picture of how that instruction or that command or that verse fits in what the Spirit of God has given us all around it. And so this morning, we're going to look at a text that is very practically helpful. For me, it's very practically challenging. For many of us, it's very familiar. It's going to be Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, and it speaks about what we speak about. It gives us instruction about our words. It's very, very familiar. And I'll admit, I'm almost reluctant to tell you where we're landing because we're going to start at 30,000 feet in the air and we're going to begin our gradual descent. Okay? It's going to take us a little while before we get to Ephesians 4, verse 29. But I believe that the entire descent is very important, the entire flight, if you will is very important to help us. Because again, we touched on this with our theme of grace, we have come to recognize in Scripture that grace is both received from God and lived out in our lives. God says, here is my absolute, undeserved favor and kindness to you through Jesus Christ. You didn't earn it, you don't deserve it, but I am going to show you grace. That's wonderful. That's worth rejoicing in. That's something, again, that far too often we take for granted. But having received that grace then, we move to, so how is that grace 
lived. So the theme of our study has been abundant grace in action. Grace received and lived. Not taken for granted, but appreciated, worshipped, and then lived out. One of the reasons it's important that we kind of take this flight, if you will, through the book of Ephesians is it will help us not just with the what to do, because Ephesians 4.29 tells us pretty clearly, here's what to do, but it will also help us with the how. Here's how you can go about this. And beyond the what and the how, a question that like little kids are really good at asking when they're given instruction, but sometimes as mature believers, we forget is the why. Again, I can give a child instruction like, why? Why? And because I said so, right? Um, to go, well, you know what? You're going to do this because I said so, because that's just the instruction that you were given. Within the pages of Ephesians, I believe we're reminded, we're, we're, we are commanded, here's what should happen with your words, but we're reminded and challenged, and here's why you should do this, along with how you should do this and what it means. This morning, we're going to walk through three primary thoughts. First, we're going to look at the reception of grace. Secondly, the transformation of grace. And then thirdly, the communication of grace in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. So we'll begin in Ephesians chapter 1, where we read earlier at the reception of grace. And I, I want to challenge us along the way with each of the thoughts, so I'm going to add to them along the way. Number one, we want us to look at the reception of grace motivates joyful praise. Can I remind all of us this morning that that abundant grace side of the equation, that grace received, motivates joyful, grateful, exuberant praise. I referenced it in our scripture reading earlier, but the longest sentence in the Greek New Testament is Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. It's 220 words where Paul just amazed by what God has done through Jesus Christ and salvation, kind of explodes as he's inspired by the Spirit of God saying, give praise to him. We read just the first half of that sentence earlier in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Again, you just look at the opening words, you see his praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And again, even later in verse 6, he says, It is to the praise of the glory of his grace. And he will come back to a similar refrain in verse 12. And again in verse 14, this is to the praise of his glory. This is to the praise of his glory. Because when we realize God has favored us, through Jesus Christ. He's provided what was needed to rescue us from our sin. That generates a praise within us. Again, you notice even how his grace has been received. It is given richly, verse 7 says to us. It is according to the riches of his grace. He didn't just kind of like, well, you know, here's a little bit just to help you get by. If you need more, come see me. It's like he has shown you incredible grace through Jesus Christ. Even as you scan those verses, if we ask the question, what did his grace do? We pick up some incredible thoughts very briefly. Each of these we could probably spend an entire service focused on, but just get the point. It tells us here, he chose, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he has chosen you. 
He's declared you holy and blameless in justifying you. He loved you. He adopted you, counting you as a legal heir or inheritor of his own to go what belongs to him, the riches of heaven, now belong to you for eternity because you've been adopted as an inheritor of his. He redeemed you from sin. While you chose, I chose, we all chosen to rebel against him, to reject him, and to go the way of disobedience, to go the way of sin. He says, I'll buy you back. And what was the price of that redemption in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7? In whom we have redemption through his blood. He shed his blood to buy me back from sin, to provide your redemption as well. And then he forgives. He's not going, well, you know what? Let me hold it over you because I had to bail you out. He says, in Christ, you've been forgiven, released from the wrongs. Like the wonderful text in Psalm 103 tells us, as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he looks at you and he does not see your sin. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ because you've been redeemed, you've been adopted, you've been forgiven because Jesus' blood paid for your sins. You're declared to be holy and blameless. This theme is not only Ephesians chapter 1. The reception of his grace that motivates joyful praise is also found in chapter 2. We could also say it's found in chapter 3. For sake of time, we'll look at it just briefly in chapter 2, and then we need to get to our second thought. I don't know how it was for you, but I remember being a kid growing up riding on the plane, and you know they make the announcement, and they're like, we're about to begin our descent, so your tray tables need to be up, and your seat needs to be in the upright position, and you need to put your seatbelt back on, and all that stuff. And I'm like, okay, we're almost there. And yet, like that last 40 minutes of descent as a child seems like eternity. It's like... Aren't we almost there? Aren't we almost? No, we're not. We got a little while before we get down. And I kind of want to, as we work our way through the text, not go too fast. It's really bad if we go too fast um, and not go too slowly. But let's look at Ephesians chapter 2 and just listen to this same emphasis on the reception of grace. We'll start in verse 4. But God, He's told us we're dead in trespasses and sins, by the way. He's told us we serve a different master. He's the prince of the power of the air that now worketh in the children of disobedience. It's like, you belong to the devil and you obeyed him. It's not good. You're spiritually dead. And then he says, verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, in case we miss it, he's like, by grace, you are saved. It is God's favor to you that took you from death to life because God had great love and he didn't keep that great love for himself. He showed it to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Verse 6, he raised us up together. He made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. 
There's so much again here in these verses. Let's just bullet point them quickly. We're recipients of abundant mercy. We're objects of incredible love. We're raised from death to life in Christ. We're exalted to a place of honor. We're saved and we're able to experience the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness in the ages to come. Like, I love that phrase in verse 7. It's kind of captured my mind for a couple months now. We've referenced it before when we celebrate the Lord's table and look at this text. But he's like, do you realize God is still unfolding how abundant his grace has been to you? And it won't be until the day we're in glory that we begin to glimpse the great reality of that. God wants us to realize more and more that he has shown us some undeserved favor in Jesus Christ. I would be remiss if I didn't ask the question for each person here, are you a recipient of God's grace? Has there ever been a point where you said, God, I I have sinned against you. I deserve judgment from you. I certainly don't deserve grace. I certainly don't deserve favor. But God, as I understand it, you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross to pay for my sins, to rise from the grave overcoming sin and death. God, I'm I'm believing Jesus saves. God, I'm, I'm trusting Jesus to save me. If there hasn't ever been a day where you acknowledged your sin to God and believed on Jesus Christ and asked him to save you, today needs to be that day. You say, God, I am a sinner, but I believe you've shown grace through Jesus. Would you forgive me of my sin and save me? It's that simple. That's the wonderful truth of Ephesians 2, 8, 9 that we just quickly read. It is by grace you are saved through faith, through belief. It is not through religious activity. It is not through your attempts to earn it. It is by God's favor when you believe that you're saved. And again, if you're here this morning and you're not sure of that, I'd love to talk to you. But simply, you can talk to God and say, God, I'm a sinner. And I believe Jesus Christ saves. I'm asking him to save me. The reception of grace for the believer, for the one who has believed on Christ, should motivate joyful praise. So that by the time we get to commands down the road, we're not like, well, I guess I have to. We're like, God, I want to be changed. I want to bring glory to you. Look at what you've done for me through Jesus Christ. I have an incredible why in my obedience. The reception of grace first motivates joyful praise. Secondly, the transformation of grace shapes everyday life. The transformation of grace shapes everyday life. When you hit chapter 4 in the book of Ephesians, a major transition occurs. You read through chapters 1 through 3, and if you just went through chapters 1 through 3 looking for imperatives, you would not find very many commands. There's a lot of instruction being told, here's what God's done for you. Here's what Jesus has done for you. Here's the grace that God has shown for you. And then when you get to chapter 4, all of a sudden you start to get command. Command, 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 command to go, here's what God did. Now here's how you live. Here's how you're changed. And so Paul makes a transition inspired by the Spirit of God in chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you have been called. Paul says, look, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. For his faith, Paul has actually been imprisoned because he's been preaching Jesus Christ. And he says, but I am begging you, I'm urging you, I'm challenging you, live 
in a manner that is worthy of your salvation in Christ. We could say it this way, the call for a life consistent with your position in Christ. Says you've been saved by faith in Christ alone, so live like it. Live the reality that is true every day. Walk worthy. As he spells that out, he touches on what they have agreed to believe. We looked at that a few weeks ago, the giftedness that's given to the church. We looked at that a few weeks ago. But I want to zero in on verse 17 as we kind of continue our descent here towards verse 29. Whereas chapter 4 opens with a call for a life consistent with your position in Christ, we gain more detail in verse 17 and following. We might call it the command for a life distinct from your past before Christ. He's going to start to give commands and go, okay, here's what you used to be, so don't do that anymore. Live differently now. Something has changed, so you need to live differently. So when we come to verse 17, I'm going to read verse 17 down through uh, verse 19. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God that is in them, uh, from the life, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. We're not going to unpack every detail of that, but Here's what he's saying. He's like, there are people who, because they have rejected God, they've disobeyed God, they don't understand the things of God. Reality is, this is where all of us start prior to salvation. They don't understand the things of God, so they are alienated from him, they are blind, and they do what feels good serving themselves. That's how they walk. That's how they conduct life. Leading into that then in verse 20, he makes a transition again. But you have not so learned Christ. Like Here's the way the unbeliever lives. He's blind. He doesn't get it. He doesn't understand why Christians do the things that they do. He just totally doesn't understand. And he's going to live for himself. But in verse 20, he says, but you have not so learned Christ. You've learned something different being saved. And then he says, if so be, you've heard of him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that she put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and be put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Simple summary, he says, in Christ you've learned a different way. You get rid of old behaviors, you put the, off the past behaviors, allow God to change your thinking through his spirit and put on new behaviors that are consistent with the teaching of Jesus and your position in him. As the text continues to unfold, just to understand its structure before we get to one, we're given five commands that follow, or five groupings of commands is a better way to say that, that follow. Each of them give a negative instruction, then a positive instruction, and then finally a reason. So there are five groupings, and it's like, here's a negative instruction, here's a positive instruction, and then here's a reason. Like, we've talked about it before, let him that stole steal no more. Negative instruction, don't steal. Right? 
positive instruction, but rather let him labor working with his own hands. And then the reason, so that he may have to give to him the needed. Okay? Ephesians 4.29 falls into that section of going, here's what it looks like as you're transformed, as you're changed by Jesus Christ, putting off the old, putting on the new for this reason. And let me just kind of jump past verse 29 so that we make sure we see the flow continues about transformation. Very quickly after that, he's going to say, now be a follower of God. This is what it looks like to live as an imitator of God walking in love. I find that helpful and instructive because when we get to this verse about our words, it helps our speech if we think, I need my words to look like an imitator of God and to be walking in love as I say them, as I type them, as I text them. The transformation of grace shapes everyday life even down to our words. Like, this isn't just some kind of abstract doctrinal theory, but to go, because of what God has done in Christ, because he saved me, because he changed me, here's what it looks like when I talk. So third, having looked at the reception of grace motivates joyful praise and the transformation of grace shapes everyday life. Third, we come to verse 29, and we want to look at this idea that the communication of grace purposes our words. The communication of grace purposes our words. We know this. We've talked about this often. You live it every day. Uh, But we live in a time that has an abundance of words. I mean, I, I didn't look to see if there are statistics out there, but I have to imagine that the number of words you and I encounter every day is dramatically higher than that of people 30 years ago, let alone 50 years ago, let alone 100 years ago, because it's not just, well, who did I see face-to-face and who did I talk to? I can turn things on and listen to words in the car. I can look at my phone and have all kinds of words come my way. And, And so every day we are talking, we are texting, we are typing, we are posting. We are using our words reactively and we are using our words proactively. And so I would encourage you as the Spirit of God works in your heart through this text to think through how does this text need to shape my use of words? Words that are spoken, that's clearly the context here, but potentially words that are written, that are typed, to go, how can I allow grace to show up in my use of words? Can I also challenge us within this text, I think it's very appropriate by way of application, not just to think of your words reactively, but to think, how do I use my words proactively? Okay, so we can go, hey, you know what, someone said this to me and no corrupt communication, so I'm not going to respond that way. I'm going to fight the flesh. I'm not going to respond. That's wonderful. And maybe you even respond in kindness, which is grace, ministering grace to those that hear it. But what about through your day when it's like, you know, I, I wonder how so-and-so is doing. Maybe I ought to just reach out and talk to them. Maybe I ought to give them a call. Maybe I ought to send them a quick email, send them a message. How do I use my words not just reactively, but proactively in light of this text? As we look at the communication of grace purposing our words, notice we begin first with a comprehensive restriction. 
We begin first with a comprehensive restriction. There are two parts to this, we could say. One, it begins with a prohibited quality, let no corrupt. Like, comprehensive restriction, here's the prohibitive quality, nothing corrupt. It's been a good number of years ago now. Um, my wife went to go pick up a bulk order of chicken. And uh, in our family, that can mean 80, 120 pounds of chicken in the car. And this particular time, the containers that were picked up, unfortunately, tragically, were not well sealed. And so there was chicken juice in the back of our car. We tried to clean it up, did the best we could. But it did not take long. And you go, this car smells horrible. Like, unlike anything else that I had ever smelled. And I'm like, how? Like, and so we're buying the powders and the sprays and, like, everything possible going, we've got, like, it's almost undrivable. It could be winter and the windows are going to be down. Like, this is so bad. Like, once that spilled, getting it out was, like, brutal. We look at this word corrupt. This word in the original language speaks of something that is rotten. In fact, one of the texts that it's used in illust for illustration speaks of rotten fish. The word as I was studying this week was rancid. And that's why I'm like, I know what rancid smells like. Not on the fish side, but definitely on the chicken side. Okay? You know, I wonder if it would help us if we went and go, you know, my words can corrupt. They can be like that which is rotting. And realize, like, if, if you went and bought chicken, you go, I'm making sure that doesn't happen. Even last night, we were taking chicken over to someone it hadn't been cooked yet, um, and so it was in a metal bowl, because we learned. Like, yeah, while it was in a Ziploc, we don't trust the dip Ziploc. The metal bowl, that works, because once you spill it, you realize, I'm not doing that again. But you know, we all go through our days and our weeks, and words come out, and we're like, oops, I probably shouldn't have said that. Or maybe sometimes, they deserved it. You know what they said to me? And like the damage is done, the corrupting influence is out there, and you're not taking it back. It's not happening. This word for corrupt can not only mean what is rotten, it can mean that which is worn out or useless. Like it really serves no point. It's used in the Gospels of a tree that doesn't produce fruit, or when it does, it produces bad fruit. Like it's, there's just no value there. You know, I would remind you, scriptures have much to say about words that are hurtful, harmful, versus words that are helpful or healthful. In fact, I found my mind often going to Proverbs, so I'll take you there with just a couple texts as we look at this prohibited quality, this uh, no corrupt. Proverbs 12, 18 reminds us, there is that speaketh like the piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise is health. Man, go online. You'll see that. Piercings like a sword? How do we stick? How do we jab? How do we needle with what we say? And unfortunately, it creeps into our homes. It creeps into our workplaces. It's like, they said that, I'm going to stick them back. And the scriptures clearly tell us, what does the tongue of the wise do? It's not going, you know, they jab me, I'll stick them back. It's going, the tongue of the wise is health. Like the wise person's speech brings about a different result. Proverbs 18.21 paints it even more starkly. 
death and life are in the power of the tongue. My words can kill, can hurt, can harm, or my words can bring life, help, health, encouragement. The end of that verse, Proverbs 18, 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. Be careful what you love as to how quick your mind is, how sharp your words can be. There's a danger there. In fact, I would maybe challenge you as we work our way through, maybe jot down some of these references and go, I'm going to memorize those. Because the Spirit of God with the Word of God has a wonderful way of shaping the child of God. You know what you said there? That fell short. That didn't meet the standard. That was corrupt communication. We look at the comprehensive restriction. He starts with no corrupt. And by the way, again, notice that word, no. It is comprehensive. That word's there for a reason. Not some, not a few, not when it's deserved, right? No corrupt communication, not for me or for you, because of Jesus. I'm different. I've learned Christ differently. I'm putting this off. Having looked at the prohibited quality, secondly, I'll just note for us, it's a perpetual responsibility. It's a perpetual responsibility. This is the imperative in this text, in this verse. It is a present tense imperative of prohibition, meaning this is something you need to give attention to in an ongoing way. I find that helpful. That's why I'm taking the time to note it as a separate point. Because of James 3. What does James 3 say about your tongue? You can't control it. Right? James 3 tells us the tongue, it's a fire. Okay? It's full of poison. It's an unruly evil. Right? And then what does it tell us in James 3? The tongue can no man tame. So I assume that means you and me. Like, I don't get to the point where it's like, I mastered it. The next time someone speaks to me, I don't even have to worry about it. I got it tamed. I, I mean, I conquered that a long time ago. So I have to be working at obeying this command to go, be letting no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, Dan. Watch it. Watch it. Watch it. Watch it. It is a perpetual responsibility for each of us. There's a danger for us in our words. It could be the stress of the moment. It could be the tiredness. It could just be the cunning of the temptation, not just the timing of the temptation. And because we still need God to work on our hearts, it slips out. What does corrupt communication look like? We could go down all kinds of roads. Let me just give you several quick thoughts. Corrupt communication is when we mislead and lie. Corrupt communication is when we complain or when we boast or we slander, or we criticize, or we gossip, or we judge and condemn, or we seek to actually wound, or we speak in anger, right? They're like, if we start thinking about it, there are all these commands that Scripture gives us to be careful about our words, like don't lie, and uh, don't slander, and don't gossip, and don't be a talebearer. And you go, okay, God, I need your help to root those things out. The list could certainly go on. The communication of grace purposes our words, first, through a prohibitive restriction, secondly, through a singular qualification. 
a singular qualification. Like, here's the test to see if my words pass or your words pass. But that which is good to the use of edifying. Rather than speaking in a way that corrupts, I'm supposed to use my words to build up, to edify, to to help, not to destroy, not to tear down. Edification has already been a theme in chapter 4. We looked at that more at grace and the gifts that God gives because he's been talking about how the church is built up, how the church is edified. Now he reminds us that we can use our words to actually build up, to strengthen, to use my words constructively, supplying what is lacking, repairing what is broken, and making things better. Maybe a good question to ask yourself, maybe two good questions is, one, how can I use my words to make this situation better? I think we all know what it's like, whether it's at work, or in our homes, maybe it's a phone call, and all of a sudden you're like, this is not good. And you, like, you already find yourself going, oh, I want to give them a piece of my mind. Like, and just stop and go, how can I use my words to make this situation better? Like, let me just put that check right there. Like, what I'm feeling is not good. What I want to say is not good. But how can I use my words to make this situation better? Or maybe just on another practical level, what can I say to move this conversation in a more positive direction? The rock is starting to roll down the hill. The avalanche is coming. Like, what can I say to go, we're going to stop the rock right there. Because so often, like, when we're sinned against, we respond in kind. And it just goes. And the next thing you know, it's an all-out battle. Until someone wakes up and goes, this is dumb. This is not good. How can I use my words to move this conversation in a more positive direction? Can I remind us that this qualification, good to the use of edifying, ought to be true about our words, not just in their content, but also in their disposition. Not just in their content, but also their disposition. Sometimes we justify ourselves and be like, what I said was true. Yeah, it was. (laughs) But it was not the Ephesians 4.15 speaking the truth in Love, like we missed that verse back there. I spoke the truth. I gave you a piece of my mind. It ought to help you because it was true. You just don't get it. Instead of going, you know what? All I want from this conversation is for you to be better. Man, you know what a wonderful thing that is when dealing with a coworker? Maybe your husband or your spouse, your wife, and you go, you know what? My chief goal in this conversation is not me. My goal is to help you. If we can focus on loving the other person, walking in love, speaking the truth in love, so that the content of our words is not just right, but the disposition of our words is right, it is good to the use of edifying. It really helps. I need to move quickly on these, so maybe jot them down if you'd like to look at them more or memorize them, because these are helpful to me. A couple quick verses from Proverbs here. One, let me remind you, your words can encourage. Your words can encourage. Proverbs 12.25 says it this way, heaviness in the heart of man maketh it stoop, but a good word maketh it glad. You ever been there? Someone comes along and just says, hey, just want you to know I appreciate you. 
hand. Like, just that little bit of encouragement, just in a spoken word, that was grace. Words can encourage. Number two, words can sweeten and strengthen. Proverbs 12, 18, we read earlier, pointed that out, but let me give you a different verse this time. Words can sweeten and strengthen. Proverbs 16, 24 said it this way, pleasant words are as in honeycomb, sweet to the soul and health to the bones. It was one of you that told me you get more with sugar than you do with vinegar, right? Far too often our words look, smell a little more like vinegar than they do with like sugar. Our words can sweeten someone's day. They can make things better. Our words can feed, number three. Our words can feed. Proverbs 10, 21, the lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for want of wisdom. Proverbs 15, 1, our words can calm. This is one all of us should have memorized by this point. Our words can calm. A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. We can judge words a little bit by their outcome sometimes. Like, did, did that diffuse the situation or did it escalate the situation? Our words can teach. Proverbs 15, 7, the lips of the wise disperse knowledge, but the heart of the foolish doeth not so. Proverbs 16, 21, the wise in the heart shall be called prudent. The sweetness of the lips increaseth learning. Catch that. The sweetness of the lips increaseth learning. Like, the manner of what was said helps. Our words can bring joy. Proverbs 15, 23, a man hath joy by the answer of his mouth, a word spoken in due season. How good is it? Our words can satisfy. Proverbs 12, verse 14, a man shall be satisfied with good by the fruit of his mouth. Proverbs 13, 2 says something very similar as well as Proverbs 18, 20. Our words can protect. Whoso keepeth his mouth and his tongue keepeth his soul from trouble. Sometimes you can prevent problems for yourself just by being careful what you say or how you say it. Our words can protect us from ourselves. Just a couple quick practical thoughts and we'll keep moving. As you seek to use your words for the singular reason, good to the use of edifying, can I encourage you to be careful about attacking people? We're real quick sometimes to generalize. This is just kind of Common Christian Counseling 101, you always, you never, probably not helpful. Always? Always is a big word. Never? Never is a big word. Okay? Be willing to ask questions, to listen. Hey, I want my words to be good to the use of edifying, and I want to make sure I don't answer a matter before I've heard it. So were you saying this? Did you mean this? Because the way I'm understanding that is like this. And so just be willing to ask some questions to make sure you really understand before you respond. Having looked at a prohibitive restriction and a singular qualification, finally noticed a beneficial reason. What we've been driving to the whole time. That it may minister grace unto the hearers. God's favor and help can be given through our words to others. God has shown us incredible grace. We surveyed that very briefly at the beginning. Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, like, look at the reception of the grace of God. And you and I, in what we say, get to be conduits of that grace. You go, God, would you use my words to strengthen, to build, 
to help, not to hurt. God, would you uh, help me to be on guard against quick, rash responses so that my words can give your grace to those around me, to show favor and kindness to others. So this week, what about your words? That issue at work that keeps coming up, that project that everybody's stressed about, how do you use your words to help, to build up, to minister grace? What about when someone speaks critically or harshly to you? Do you respond in kind? Do you, go, you know what? I appreciate it. Thank you. Let me think about that. Let's talk through that some more. Soft answer. What about when disobedience or bad attitudes show up at home? Dad, mom, I've told you. Don't you understand? Probably not helpful. Right? Words to the use of edifying, ministering grace. What about temptation? When temptation comes to lie or to slander or to gossip or to complain, to go, I don't want my words to corrupt. God, God help me. I want to complain, but that's not helpful. That just tears things down. What about when confession's needed? Maybe a unique way to look at it, but go, in order to build this back up, I've got to admit, I was wrong. I sinned. Will you forgive me? Or on the other side of that, when someone comes to make something right, and your spirit's still going, but they haven't said all the words the right way yet. You're like, you know what, it's okay. I'm going to let you go. It's, it's fine. I, I release you. I forgive you. Don't worry about it. Our words have incredible power to help or to harm, to be corrupt or to edify. If we will pursue edifying because God has shown us grace, God is changing us by his grace, we're learning Christ, putting off the old man, putting on the new, we can be conduits of grace to those that we speak to. So I wonder who it is that God will have you speak to this week? Maybe proactively, just God prompts you and you're like, I'm going to reach out and use my words to help. Or maybe reactively because it's a tense, difficult situation. May your words, my words, all of our words this week reflect God's grace as we seek to edify. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the practical truth that we've seen in Ephesians 4.29, but also recognizing the context in which that command comes, knowing that you have saved us from our sin by incredible grace, rich, abundant grace. Lord, I pray for each believer here that we would allow ourselves to be changed by that same grace, conformed to the image of your Son. Lord, I pray particularly that you would challenge and help each of us then when it comes to our words and seeing that transformation occur that we would make sure that our words are not being used for purposes of tearing down, but instead for building up. God, we thank you that you initiated reaching out to us with abundant grace so that we can consider how it is in action with our words this week. It's in Jesus' name I pray.